Focus on Creative podcast, where we hear from creative experts, influencers, dreamers, and doers, what they've learned and what we can learn from their journey as we explore, respond, and create. Hello and welcome. This is Rich Langton and I'm so glad that we are here on the podcast yet again for another episode. I can't believe that 2020 is rolling already. This year is going so fast already and I know we're just getting started. On today's episode, we've got a really special interview that Cass and I did at the Hillsong Conference just in July last year. If you've not been to Hillsong Conference, I'd recommend that you check it out at hillsongconference.com because it's our big annual conference for our whole church. It's like a leadership conference where pastors and leaders come from all over the world and we have the most incredible speakers and guests come along to that conference. And um, Bill Johnson was our guest last year at conference. And so Cass and I had the privilege of interviewing him. If you don't know Bill, he's the pastor from Bethel Church in Reading in California. And of course, everyone would probably know this, the music from Bethel Church with Brian and Jen Johnson heading that up. They've become good friends of ours and, and the church has become a good friend of ours. And so it was a real privilege for Cass and I to sit down with Pastor Bill and be able to ask him anything that we want to ask. We had so many questions and when you meet a, a, a pastor and a Christian, a person who's been a man of faith, of integrity for so long in such a small town, really an insignificant town that has become significant because of what God has done there. Um, when you meet someone like that, it's it's just worth taking note. And so there's so many takeaways from this interview. So I'd encourage you to get a, out a pen and a paper and just write some things down and come at it with an open heart and really a prayerful spirit so that you can hear what God would have you hear rather than maybe a preconceived idea or, you know, anything like that. There's so much here, so much good to take away. So I'd encourage you to do that. And I will talk to you again at the end. We'll jump into it now. We were chatting last night and uh, we had the privilege of having dinner together and you, um, you allowed us to ask questions, which was pretty fun. And you told us, I really, the story of how God called you, I guess, to ministry and a ministry of in the spirit and of really fearlessness. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Take us back to when God called you as much as you can. What part are you, are you looking for? Um, um, well, you grew up, you're the son of a pastor. Yeah, I'm a fifth generation pastor. Yeah. On my dad's side of the family, fourth on my mom's. Yeah. And my kids are the sixth generation pastors. Yeah. Yeah. And so you grew up in a Christian family, yeah. but God got a hold of you at, at one particular time. Yeah. I wasn't a, a rebellious kid in the sense of, you know, doing all the wrong stuff, but I didn't have this passion for the Lord at all. I mean, I was, I was just kind of there. And a man named Mario Marillo would come and preach, and he was uh, he's, he's a dear friend today, <clears throat> but he would preach this, uncompromising, all-in or all-out gospel. And, uh, and I would show up every time he would preach. I, I, even though I wasn't doing right, I wanted to hear. And, uh, and I, I remember the, it just built in my heart until one particular Saturday night, I remember I was alone. And, uh, and I said, all right, I, I give you everything. Here's, this is the ultimate yes. I die to everything to say yes to you. I'm all in. And I, I literally went from 
complacent person to, you know, notebook, Bible, there to learn and there to be changed. You know, it literally overnight. It was a Saturday night, Sunday morning, everything was different. How and, old were you? Uh, 19. Yeah. Yeah. My parents never once talked to me about pastoring. Uh, never one time in my life. Uh, their goal for me was to get me to heaven. They, they, <laughs> to, to think of me pastoring was too big of a dream, you know, for, for them. So they thought my brother might be a pastor, but not me. But, um, um, yeah, that's what happened, and it, it changed my life. I mean, it was, it was all in. And um, you felt a call to ministry at that point in time? You know, I, this is going to sound strange to you. I've never been called. I've never had the experience. But what I did is I would volunteer to serve. I would just serve wherever my dad needed help. And so if he needed help, you know, starting a bookstore, I started a bookstore. If he needed help, you know, running some kind of a school, I'd run the school. I'd just figure out how to do it. Needed help uh, leading single adults. And so I would just do that. And it was after I, I did it for a couple of years, I thought, you know, I think I have a heart for this. And it wasn't, it wasn't until then that I realized, you know, probably it's what I'll do with my life. I, 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 didn't, I was in it and didn't plan to continue. I, I was just doing it to serve and uh, just, just trying to serve wherever they needed help. They needed junior, boy, junior high boys, uh, you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old boys, uh, a Sunday school teacher. Well, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. And just wherever they needed help, that's what I would do. Yeah. And then after a while, I, I discovered I had a heart for it. So I never had the typical experience of being called into ministry. I, so I figure I'm just going to keep doing it until he calls me to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. And so your father was actually pastoring the church that you are now the pastor yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he was pastoring and then uh, I don't want to jump around everywhere, but you meet your wife. Yeah, yeah. She was young. Yep. You yep. get married. Yep. And uh, are sent out to Weaverville. Yep. We got married. We were on staff at the church at Bethel, where I'm at now, my, where my dad was pastor. We were on staff for five years with him. And we ran a ministry, a street ministry for uh, hippies and street people. You know, we, we did that for a while. And then eventually they sent us up into the mountains to pastor this, uh, this church in a place called Weaverville. Uh, Weaverville is 3,500 people in the whole town, and it was the biggest town in the county. It was the town where everybody came to shop, if you can believe that, with 3,500 <laughs> people. Very rugged, mountainous area. And uh, so we were there for 17 years. Yeah. Yeah. What did you find in Weaverville? Is the church alive when you got there? Amazing, was, Holy Spirit was, moving? It was a really good church. There wasn't a lot of Holy Spirit activity, but it was a really solid group of believers, very, very devoted. The elders were true elders. They weren't you know, just put there because they were, had money or whatever. They were, they were true leaders. So I inherited something really rich, but there wasn't much in, in the sense of a move of the Holy Spirit at all. So um, we, we, found, uh, we found an opportunity to experiment and learn. So we were just kind of out of the way, so people, we didn't bother anyone, so we could experiment. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's what we did. I mean, we, we experimented in, in uh, Apple computers, you have uh, manufacturing, which is zero defect is the core value. And then you have research and development, 
And if you have zero defect as a core value for research and development, you won't invent anything. There would be no iPhone or iPad or, or whatever company you're talking about. And so for us, research and development was all ministry. It was we had to experiment and learn how to do things because we were trying to do things. We didn't know anybody else doing them. I didn't know anyone that was getting people healed. I didn't know anybody that was, you know, ministering in the prophetic like we had in our heart to do. And and, uh, and so we would just experiment, but just stay close and stay accountable. And then uh, when it doesn't work, you clean up your mess and you get up and you move on. And so for us, ministry is, is research and development. Integrity, character is, uh, is zero defect. It's manufacturing. And so that's, that's how we, to this day, we, we call Bethel the great experiment, and, uh, <laughs> which means some things work. And when they work, it's really good. And when they don't, you just have a big mess to clean up. <laughs> that's, that's how we do life, yeah. I like that, though, because many people, we might come from a small church and we, we see it as small, but you saw it differently. You saw the opportunity differently, and I love that. Yeah. Um, opportunity to experiment. So yeah. did the 17 years go quickly? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. I mean, we were just contending, you know, for a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And and we had it in different levels. But the last year I was there, we had a mighty, mighty outpouring. And uh, and that's why it was so hard to leave. It's what I had been sowing into for so many years. And we finally had this explosive thing going on where just the Holy Spirit was moving so powerfully that that uh, it was it was really tough to leave that. Um, I didn't think in terms of a large church as being a promotion. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been invited to move and to be a pastor of larger churches all the time, and I just always said no, because I, I figured a small town like Weaverville could catch even the enemy off guard. <laughs> Nobody expects anything from Weaverville, even the devil, so we can sneak up on him. And, uh, and so that's, that's how we lived. We just, we just said one person in God is a majority, Let's uh, affect the course of history from this little town. And that's what we gave ourselves to do. So I, I honestly didn't think going to a bigger church or a bigger town would be a promotion. I, I would only do it if he said to go. And so eventually he did. He did so. Which respectfully, I've been to Reading. Yeah. And I feel that Reading is a little bit maybe like Weaverville. Yeah, yeah. And is. I would think all of us would go... Where is Reading? Yeah. And yeah. how does God move in Reading? Because you have equally surprised the enemy yeah. from that position. Yeah. That would be true. Yeah. Like yeah. you're an airport yeah. away from San Francisco. You are. It yeah. is small. 90,000 in the city limits. Right. 90,000 in the city. Mm. And it's the big city. Yeah. And the church has three campuses. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Many people come. You can't walk around the city and mention Bethel and not have somebody yeah. know of the church and what you do amongst the community. Yeah, there's over 11,000 people in Bethel. Right, so that's a really high percentage of the population of the city. Yeah. Right. So, it's amazing. It's actually incredible. Yeah. So you get the call to come back to Reading. You're excited? Only, only when I knew it was his will, then you, then you have to start celebrating. You have to feed off his will. Getting to the place to recognize that was really hard for me because we finally had it happening when I'd been, you know, crying out for it. How did you discern the will of God for you to move? Oh, you know his voice. You know his voice. You know that 
when they first asked me to come to, back to Reading, the elders asked me to come back and to pastor the, the mother church of where we were. And my immediate response was no. And so I, I said, I appreciate the offer, thank you, but I'm not interested. And as soon as I said it, I knew I'd violated. I knew I knew I had. I didn't ask him. I was I was answering out of the momentum of my, of my history. He's allowed me to say no every opportunity, but this time, it wasn't him. And I could tell as soon as the words came out of my mouth. I thought, oh no. <laughs> oh man, that was rough. That was rough. But once. Once we resolve that, that we were hearing correctly, then of course it becomes a joy. You just, you have to, you have to take what he says and just make it your joy. So, so we did, and it's been incredible. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so before you move back though, you're in Weaverville, it went yeah. from being almost sounds like closed to the Holy Spirit to God is moving. Yes, yeah. How did that begin? Where did that start? How did you, how did you make the change? Well, you, you have to teach it and then you have to model it and then you have to give occasion for it to happen. So it's just those three things. You have to, you have to teach it. So what does that look like? Well, teaching would be obvious. You teach what the Scripture says. Let's say it's the prophetic. You teach what the Bible says about the prophetic. It's for today. You, you take them through the scripture. You model it uh, in that you will uh, minister prophetically to people. And then you give opportunity for people to do it. And, uh, but to do that, you have to give opportunity for people to fail and not be condemned. Uh, when, I taught my, my, uh, when I taught my boys how to ride their bikes, we took them down to the park where there was a lot of grass so that when they fell, they would fall on the grass. And so if you're gonna teach people to do something new, you need to put them in a safe place where they can fail safely. And uh, you know, don't put them up in front of the church, let them fail there, let them fail in a small group so that we can, in fact, in our school, our school of ministry, we've got about 2,500 students. We require them, that one of the first days of our school, we, we tell them, you are required to fail at least three times or you will not be accepted into the second year. And for us, that means, listen, you have to be, you have to go after this enough that you overextend yourself. Because we want you to know how to fail safely in a loving environment and own up to it here. Because if you can't handle it here, you won't do it out there when you're pastoring a church or you're running a business or whatever. So that's, that's actually how we, how we do it. So we, we, we train people. You know, we just do our best, just try to get them to, like, for example, we would, we've, we've done this before. We'd take a, a room like this, split them in half, have you pair off. Everybody on the right, come up with a word of knowledge of the person that you're paired off with. Something that you couldn't know in the natural. Ask God. You've got two minutes. And at the end of two minutes, we say, now share your word. At the end of, of that, we say, all right, all of you that received your word, how many, how many of them got it Right. And they put their hands up, and we all cheer. Now we say, how many of them got it wrong? They put their hands up, and we all cheer. <laughs> yeah. So we that now? Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. It's just, you, you, have to, you have to have confidence that God can and will use you. Yeah. And, you know, for example, he says, heal the sick. I may stink at it my whole life, 
but I don't have the right to change the assignment. I don't have the right, the liberty to adjust the assignment to what I'm good at. And that's most of what's done in ministry is people reduce the assignment to what they're good at. <laughs> Another example you mentioned to us was with the men's ministry. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah we, we just didn't have much in a way of like uh, prophetic or just people hearing from the Lord. We, just, we had soul. We just didn't have any of it, to be honest, when I got there that I could see. And uh, so I, uh, we would have a men's meeting once a month. And, and of course, it's a small church. So we, we got maybe 10 people, 15 at the most, sitting around a couple large tables. And uh, so one uh, night, uh, Tuesday night, I remember, I turned to the guy on my right. I said, if Jesus were to walk in the room right now, what do you think he'd say? And the guy thought for a moment, and he, and he told us what he thought Jesus would say. So then I went to the next person. I said, what do you think he would say? And he did the same, and I went all around the room. And at the end of it all, I said, did you notice a similar theme? You guys just all prophesied. Now, if I have them try to prophesy, they will overthink it and miss it. But if I have them live naturally out of their communion with the Lord, they're very in tune to what God is saying. So we just use that as an opportunity to say, I don't know if you realize this, but there was a common thread through all of your words, and you guys just prophesied to us as a whole. And so uh, when we try to believe is when we have the greatest difficulty with faith. When we yield to what God has said is when we have our greatest access to faith. So it's learning how to not overwork our way into obedience, but just really to surrender ourselves to that momentum of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we did, and it just began to take off from there. And from that, uh, I don't know how many of you know Chris Valentin, but he, he's, uh, uh, apparently you know him. Uh, he, he, is, he is an international prophet. I mean, he, he meets with presidents, he meets with parliament, he meets with he, uh, Congress, some of the congressmen in the U.S. Have, have asked him to come and teach them about uh, the kingdom and about politics. And I mean, the Lord's raised him up, but he's, he was a businessman at Weaverville, and he wasn't even in the leadership. He was, he was in the middle of a nervous breakdown. And, uh, but he, he and his prophetic gift grew in that very simple environment where he was just people are, what you have to do is you have to give people permission Permission to be who they are. But stay in relationship so you can adjust when people overextend or, you know, they prophesy something simply not true or whatever. You know, we don't reject them for that. You know, one of our pastors several years ago got up on a Sunday and I was out of town and he, he made a huge, huge mistake. He just, something that he did really, I, I was, I forget where I was, but I, I, I heard about what he did, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so when I came home, I I found him, and I asked him to speak again the next Sunday. Um, punishment is not how you learn stuff. Punishment is for the punisher. Correction works differently. You give people opportunity to be who God made them to be. So you have to believe the person is actually saved. If you believe the person is actually saved, then you automatically believe they have a heart to do the right thing. So then what you do is you either educate them or you give them opportunity to excel in who God made them to be. So I had him speak the next week. Yeah, and instead of saying, 
I don't want you speaking again for six months or whatever. Just put him up again. He doesn't need me to. He doesn't need me to get mad at him about something. He already knows. He already knows what what was wrong. I mean, it wasn't a you know moral issue or something like that. It was just he just made a real blunder in his uh, in his his message. So he he already knows what he did. He doesn't need me to rub his nose in it. You know, that's yeah, that's unproductive. As a church, you are well known for raising up and sending out so many people. Like I think of the worship area of your church and the number of people that you've sent out. But that is equally as true of preaching and teaching and all sorts of different aspects of ministry. What's your thinking around that? How do you train generations for ministry? Our philosophy is that anybody on our staff uh, they get something from the Lord. If they get a real breakthrough with youth or children or music or it doesn't matter what it is, as soon as they do, we want them to travel and give it away. A certain amount of time they can travel. Every, everyone that God touches in a unique way because you only get to keep what you give away. And so we position ourselves to increase in the area by serving the body of Christ in whatever measure he's given us. And so we automatically do that. One of the things we do is we have lots of interns. We have lots of people who help on a... uh, They will just travel uh, with some of us who travel. In our school of ministry, I take teams of people uh, with me often throughout the school year. And we just let them be exposed to the diversity that exists in the church to celebrate it. Um, Diversity is not to be tolerated. It truly is to be valued and celebrated. So we expose them. Then we give them the opportunity to serve. And sometimes, you know, I'll go places and it's the students that will do the Sunday school classes and do an adult class and this sort of thing, you know. So we just give them exposure. In your humanity, do you ever get disappointed when people leave? Um, Oh, always disappointed, but always happy too. I mean, always disappointed in that, you know, if you want to be real selfish about it, I'd like to keep everybody in Reading. But uh, we'll, we'll have eternity for that. So right now... We're in this to mark the course of history. So that's, that's what we do. So, yeah. Is it strategic that you have worship and the word working together? Have you always aimed to have a ministry that has worship attached to it? Yeah. Yeah, my dad was a, a worshiper. Uh, he taught us, oh, goodness, probably 1971, he taught a series out of Ezekiel on ministry in the inner court, ministry in the outer court. And I remember, uh, I was, goodness, I was 20 years old maybe 21. And I remember when he was through with that series, I bowed my head. There there wasn't an altar call. There wasn't a prayer time that I recall. But I remember when he was through with that message about what it meant to minister to the Lord, to be a worshiper. I bowed my head. And I said, God, I give you the rest of my life to teach me this one thing. So when my dad died, the family was in the room with him. It was a, it's a rough time because he died of a disease we see healed. And the worst thing you can do is to create a theology around what doesn't happen. Base your theology around what God's doing. So here in this moment, my, my, my dad dies, and we've got children, grandchildren, everybody around him, great-grandchildren all around this bed. And we made a covenant together that we would commit ourselves as a family to carry on his mantle in worship. And then 
what I determined to do is in those kinds of moments, you've got confusion, you've got pain, you've got disappointment, you've got guilt. What if we would have done this? You've got all this stuff going on. And I thought, you know what I want to do? Is I'm going to hold all that stuff very close to my heart right now, all this pain, and I'm going to give him praise in the middle of this pain. Because this is an offering I won't have a chance to give him in eternity. There's no tears there. There's no pain there. So I have a chance to give him a rare gift right now. So I'm going to grab my pain, hold it close, and let it flavor the incense of my worship as we give God praise. Let's specifically, God, you are the healer. You always heal. You are the provider. You always provide. So we, we grab our moments. Yeah. But he, he was the one who really, who really instilled that in us to, to love the word and to be a worshiper. <laughs> we'll just pull ourselves together here. So for you on a, you know, the next morning you've made that covenant, what does that look like? What does devotion for you look like? Well, first of all, I'm in the Word absolutely every day. I don't ever, I missed one day 30-some years ago because I was unconscious. I had kidney stones, middle of the night, and they drugged me up. I was unconscious for 24 hours. I missed that day. But uh, no, I'm in the Word every day. But I do not study the Word so I can teach. I only study to learn. And I just, I just, I want to, I, I want personal transformation from what I read. And I want it to be life to me. And, uh, and so my time, whether it's the next morning or a thousand mornings later, you know, I'm going to be in the Word. I'm going to read and I'm going to reread. If I'm going to take time to pray, which, which I love to do, if I'm going to take an hour to pray, probably 45 minutes is going to be worship. You can pray for a lot of stuff in 10 or 15 minutes. So if I've got 10 minutes to pray, I'll, I'll probably take seven or eight to worship and take a couple minutes just to pray. Because I, I want the strength of my life is, uh, is the affection that I have for the Lord. The, the place of adoration. When I, when I go to sleep at night, when I lay down, I immediately begin to turn my affection towards the Lord. Now, not, uh, I, I don't want to sing songs. I don't want to stay awake. I want to go to sleep. You know, I'm, I'm not there praying for the nations. There are moments for that, but not this moment. This is the moment I'm going to sleep. So I turn my affection towards the Lord, and He is so drawn, the Holy Spirit is so drawn to our affection that his presence just begins to settle on me. And in that moment, there's an engagement of, of his heart and mine. And it's in that place I want to go to sleep. And uh, we would have better days if we had better nights. And so in that place is where I go to sleep. If I wake up in the night, immediately turn my, if I get up to use the restroom or I just wake up for whatever reason, I hear a noise in the house, that affection gets reconnected to the presence. And see, that way, there's, there's actually interaction between the Holy Spirit and your spirit man all night long while you sleep because you, you've paved the way for this interaction. A couple weeks ago, actually, it was, it was maybe a week ago, 10 days ago, I woke up in the middle of the night, and instead of turning my heart of affection towards him, I started thinking about a problem. And I became very anxious, and it was hard to go back to sleep. 
And when I got up the next morning, I realized that anxiety replaced worship. Anxiety moved into the chair that worship resided in. Oh, goodness gracious. I saw it so clear, I thought, oh, no. I've done that many times in my life. I have I've given the seat of worship to fear and anxiety. Because every decision we make, every word we say, either comes from fear or love. And I had given fear that place. And that's why it was hard to go to sleep. It's hard to hear from God when you're anxious. So you, you have to settle things before he speaks. So that when he speaks, you're impacted, yeah. You talk today about renewing your mind and often the battle is in your head. Keys to renewing your mind. Like what have you learned over the years that have helped with that process? Well, just first of all, just being inspired by Jesus. He just thinks different. He thinks that you live by dying. He thinks you gain by giving. He thinks you're exalted by going low. He just thinks different. He looks at a crowd of thousands of people and he's not nervous about what needs to happen. He thinks different. We say, well, of course, he's God. That's true, but he restricted himself to the limitations of a human being with all the same temptations that we have. So he had to process the same thing. So when I see that example, that makes me jealous because I've come to discover that what he modeled, he modeled so I could follow. He didn't model it to intimidate me. He modeled it to invite me. So when I see that, I have motivation. It's not just the miracles. I mean, I like miracles as much as anybody I know, but I don't need a miracle to be entertained by God. It's my identity isn't in a miracle. I owe him miracles. I owe him. It's my obligation. I owe him fruit of the impossible. And I, I want to stand before him one day with fruit that was impossible because that's what I was called to. Yeah, stuff that I can't do. It can only happen if I yield. It can only happen if I surrender. That's, that's what I want. So when you see how Jesus thinks and how he functions, man, I, just, I have to have a change. I've got to have a change in my approach. You know, anybody in this room, if, if one of you were to be touched by God and you stood up and somebody came to you that had a cancer growing on the side of their neck and you prayed for them and it disappeared and then somebody else came up and you saw a cancerous tumor on their back and you touched it and it disappeared and then somebody else came up, you saw a cancerous tumor on their eye and it disappeared. By the time you do three or four of those, you're looking for cancer to pray for. Why? Because it's the experience in the anointing that renews your mind. Now you see the cancer as an opportunity, not as an obstacle. But that can only happen in the anointing. Yeah. The, the revelation of Scripture has to take us to the experience. And that's where the mind's renewed. What happens when people don't get healed? Pray again. Yeah, come back next week. We'll try, let's try it again. Right. Yeah, I, I, never, I don't ever blame them. I don't ever say, well, you didn't have enough faith. Because the Bible says it's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. So the faith is my responsibility, not theirs. 
So just take responsibility. Say, you know what? Sometimes I'll say, you know, um, sometimes I'll pray for people. They don't get healed. They still want to be healed. Find a five-year-old. They don't have the issues that I have. <laughs> and if they have the courage, they'll do it. Yeah. And there are times where great miracles take place through a child because our, ch our children are involved too. We have prophetic teams that minister in our conferences. We'll have two adults and one child. And oftentimes, uh, uh, for example, you come to a conference, we put you in a team, and there'll be three people prophesying over you for 10 or 15 minutes. And there'll be one child there. And over and over and over again, we get reports. It was the child that nailed it. <laughs> yeah, just, they got it exactly right. Yeah, because they just don't have those issues. And if we can keep them innocent and pure, and mindful of the anointing, you know, that will shape the course of history. We experienced that when we came to Reading. Um, oh, cool. Brian and Jen had all the kids write prophecies for all the guests. Oh, good. And so we received one and opened it up, not realizing it was written by, by one of the kids. Yes. And they both spoke to, directly to our situations. It was fantastic. But then to find out that it was from, from a, you know, yeah. a seven-year-old, yeah. Isn't that incredible? That was fantastic. We had, a, we had one conference where they put prophetic words on the chairs. And uh, one young lady came in. She had just lost her mother. And friends of hers brought her to the conference just to be encouraged. And on her chair was a prophetic word uh, about the loss of her mother and that her mother loved her so much and was so honor or so uh, so pleased with how her daughter turned out. And it was just this incredible prophetic word. There's no way in the world that child could know who was going to sit in that chair. But uh, yeah, so you just teach them early on to hear from God and, and then give them, give them opportunity, so. <laughs> and you've prayed over your kids, a pretty yeah. specific prayer each night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, in raising our kids, I, there was two things I would repeat to them over and over again. When I put them to bed, I, I prayed over my kids. Every night I was home. After they were asleep, I'd go in and prophesy over them. And I thought they were sleeping. I found out later they were awake some of those times. But I would prophesy, you know, how God was going to use them. And, but when they were going to sleep, you know, just maybe, um, I mean, all, the, all until they were old enough to stay up later than I was, you know. Even then, I'd go in in the morning maybe when I got up. But, uh, but I would tell them, I'd say, I'd say, son, when you go to sleep tonight, ask God if there's anything that's impossible that he wants you to do. Because I wanted to connect them in their tender moments going to sleep with the fact they've been summoned by God to do the impossible. Yeah. And then another thing I would challenge them. I said, listen, I said, honey, you're a part of a team that is here to change the world. You're, you're a world-changing person. You're part of a family of believers that's here to change the world. So you just, you instill those things in them at an early age and, and uh, um, it, it patterns them for their destiny. Over the years, have there been any disappointments? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't be trusted with gain if you can't handle disappointment. Yeah, you can't, you can't handle praise if you can't handle criticism. You can't handle a lifestyle of loyal friendships if you can't handle betrayal. What we've prayed for is too big. If we can't navigate opposition, that we can't be entrusted with the reality of what we've asked for. So when this stuff comes up, for me, it's an opportunity to advance in the kingdom. 
If, I, if I'm criticized, I'm going to go low, and I'm going to learn how to navigate my heart against the wind, like a sailboat that can advance against the wind. It's our responsibility, because what I've prayed for is on the other side of that adversity. And uh, we've had, oh goodness, we had in 10 months, uh, no, 18 months, we had 10 people die of horrible, horrible diseases when we're seeing these diseases healed. Very dear people to us, staff people close, or uh, dear friends in the church. And I mean, we've had, you know, goodness, we've had all kinds of stuff. It's, it's just, it's a part of life. Just don't ever create a theology around it. If you create a theology around what God hasn't done, it will lead you to unbelief. You know, if the pool of Bethesda were to happen today, you know, Jesus healed one person. There was maybe up to a thousand people there. If that were to happen today, pastors, theologians, TV, newsmen, newspaper writers would be interviewing the 999, asking them, what did it feel like to have Jesus walk past you? Because we build our theology around what doesn't happen to give our unbelief a safe place. And I don't want unbelief to have a safe place in me. I want it to be exposed for what it is so I can repent and get right, you know? So yeah, we've had tons, oh, tons and tons and tons. But, you know, it's, it's, it's life. I mean, there, there is betrayal, there's opposition, there's humiliation, there's all the, all the junk, you know? There's people that just start lies that are just out and out lies, but they're so convinced they're true. It's, you know, being disliked really isn't that bad. <laughs> If, if, if you don't live by the praises of men, you won't die by their criticisms. Yeah, yeah. How do you choose the team that works with you? Oh, I, I, I work with who he gives me. I mean, literally, you know, Chris and I have been together for 40 years. You know, um, another guy that you wouldn't know, Charlie Harper, it's one of our key persons uh, in the background mostly, but we've been together 40 years. You know, the guy who's the dean of our school, we've been, getting, been together 23 years. You know, I mean, these, these people have been around, and you just pour yourself into who's in front of you. You know, I, I don't go out into a room looking for the giants. You know, my, my approach to our church is uh, I'm not looking to build a big ministry. I just want to build big people. I want to see people step into their potential. And so that's what we do. And, and those who stick around, we work with. Those who leave, <laughs> we don't work with. So, yeah. I, I mean, it, it really isn't, wasn't, it wasn't a genius selection of people. It was just, we just paid attention to who, who was in the room. And, uh, you know, what you do is you, you, know, you, you speak to a group of people and you spot the ones that have fire in their eyes. You pour in them, pour in them. It doesn't mean they're superior to somebody else. It just means they'll help to pave the way for the others. You, you pour where it's hot. You look where God's touching, and you move with that. Don't, don't, don't worry over who he's not touching. Yeah. Give yourself to what he's doing. Is that what you were talking about this morning when you talked about a culture of honor and favoring those who God favors? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, you have to recognize who God's favoring. Because sometimes he'll favor somebody that you know has issues. And it doesn't mean we ever approve of, you know, something they're doing that's wrong or 
or they're compromising or unethical. Doesn't mean we ever approve that stuff. But man, you're dumb if you don't favor who God's favoring. Because we, we, I don't ever want to say that we're supposed to approve sin. I, I, I hate sin so badly. But there are times where I question somebody and then I see God's hand on them and I go, I better be careful. You have to fear the Lord in another person. Yeah, and if you don't, you'll just be stupid. Okay, last night you're on the platform and you were speaking and then you stopped. <laughs> right? And the room started cheering and kept cheering and kept cheering. What were you doing in that moment? <laughs> Good question. Just waiting. Just, just, no, I'm just waiting. Waiting for him. Just waiting. Yeah, you don't want to talk when he's not talking. Can you talk a little bit about how you prepare to minister? As in a message or something? Or sure, just like in, before in, you get on a yeah. platform like that. Yeah. Do you come to Sydney with hundreds of notes and hours worth of concordances and preparation? And this yeah. is maybe a yeah. um, loaded I question. Yeah, I don't have any of those things. So right. I, I learned a long time ago, I just work better without notes. I, I hear better. Um, I will write down a reference. I'll write down several references. I'll, I'll, I'll make notations, but I do that in my learning I make notes of my learning. I'll, I think in terms of sequence of thought. Um, how this thought leads to this thought, that leads to this thought. That's, that's how I think. That's my meditation uh, that is continuous, ongoing. Um, but <clears throat> for me, preparing for uh, today or last night or whenever, going home this weekend, <clears throat> I, don't, I personally don't prepare sermons. Um, it doesn't work well for me. I just I don't do well. It's better for me to prepare my heart and keep my heart full of what I hear God saying and just learn how to pay attention to what he's, what he's, touch, what he's touching in that particular moment and then speak out of that. Because then I go to him and I say, God, I, you know, I'd love for you to show me what I'm supposed to do. And sometimes he'll show me way in advance. Most of the time I, I really don't know until, until right before I get up. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pray and I'll say, God, I... There's all these things I enjoy talking about, but I am not interested in what I enjoy. I want to know what you're touching. I want to know what you're breathing on. I would rather do that than a hundred of these that I think are fun for me. I, that's what I want. So that's how I prepare myself. I prepare myself in worship um, always. I don't study during worship. If I get an insight, I'll write it down, but I write it down quickly so I can get back into worship because it's in the connection with presence that I learn how to how to, how to minister, <clears throat> whether it's the ministry of the word, ministry healing, whatever it might be, and it's always going to be out of that consciousness of the presence, uh, that felt presence uh, of the Spirit of God. That's all. That's what I want to do, and uh, so that's that's what I that's what I strive is probably the wrong word, but that's what I set my heart to learn to do, and to get better and better and better at that. Yeah. If you had a life message, what would it be? Oh, uh, God is good. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Pastor Brian has really been emphasizing that we should be believing for and praying for revival. Yes. And I know that that's something that you've, you've taught a lot about. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about that? Most of the time when we talk or, of or think about revival, we think in terms of entire churches or cities that are on fire for God, the impact of multiple meetings and great numbers of people coming to Christ and great healing of people's hearts and minds and bodies and whatever. And that is absolutely legitimately revival. But it starts with one person that's on fire for God. And if you only measure revival by the amount of meetings that you have or the amount of people that are in the room, then, then you'll miss it. Jesus was born in a manger. He's not that picky where he shows up. It's not hard to get him to come. It's harder to get him to stay. Be the person he wants to land upon, but then become the person he wants to remain with. Now, theologically, I can argue against that statement because he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. I get that. But there is that spirit of revival that rests upon an individual and a company of people. When we were, uh, first came to Bethel and Reading, the church was a couple thousand people. We lost in the first while, we lost a thousand people. One of the first Sunday nights, I stood up. Uh, my wife and I were standing up on the stage together. And it was a Sunday night. And there's hundreds of people in the room. I invited everybody to come up to the front the altar, and, and then I prayed that famous prayer, Holy Spirit, come. I invite you to come in power. And the power of God came crashing in on that gathering, touching one person. <laughs> Out of the hundreds of people that are all on the front, there's one person that was powerfully touched. My wife and I looked at each other, and we said, we've got it. It is now unstoppable. It's now unstoppable. This, this is the cloud the size of a man's hand. We're so often discontented by what we don't see that we fail to see what God is doing. It's true. Yeah? Yes, absolutely. Okay, you talked about being the type of person that God wants to remain with. Fire always falls on sacrifice. If there's no fire falling on the meeting, be the sacrifice. Be the offering. Right. I mean, that's it. That really is it. The standard in Scripture is God lights the fire on the altar, but it's the priests that keep it burning. Revivals start. Sometimes they'll go for a week. They'll go two. Great moves of God. It happened for us. 1987. I went to a John Wimber conference. We got home, and it was powerful for weeks and for months. And then it was lifted. And then maybe a year later, it would come back, and then it would lift and come back. And at the end of about seven or eight years, I realized uh, I, was, I flew back to Toronto. And I, on the way, I prayed. I said, God, if you'll touch me again, I'll never change the subject, which to me meant, God, if you'll touch me again, I'll never add what you're doing to what we're doing. I will make what we're doing, I'll make what you're doing all we do, which I'm just going to give myself to what you're doing. And... Um, so when, when God touches you, it may be dramatic. I've had extreme experiences. Most of mine are very, very subtle. But if you don't give attention and value the subtle, 
you, you can't be trusted with what you've asked for. We have to be stewards of seeds, not just plants. You know, you have to steward an acorn, not just the oak tree. And, and what the Lord wants to impart to us, it, it means that the fire was started by God, but it ended, I thought it ended sovereignly by God just lifting the anointing. No, it ended because the priest didn't keep it burning. We're the priests. So how do you keep it burning? You put your heart on the altar again. Yeah, God, you've got you've to touch me. I'm the offering. You do whatever you want in me. I want more of you at any cost. I will do whatever you say. You become that person living in that place, and you will attract the fire of heaven to continuously burn around you. And people come, I've had people come to me and say, this isn't revival. I go, yeah. You know, my response is, that little three-foot circle you're standing in, I can't speak of, but I know the one I'm standing in is burning. <laughs> this, this, is, this is a move of God. And I'm not going to measure it by numbers. I'm not going to measure it by meetings. I'm going to measure it by the impact of presence. And if we, if we don't know how to translate the effect of revival, we can't be effective in our influence in our communities. Because revival, the meetings are important. But if the goal, for here, here's a strange example. Many people interpret revival, for example, as the public confession of sin. There's been great historic moves of God. Students, you know, would stand up and confess sin. A great move of God would happen. But the problem is, if that's your interpretation of revival, you actually have to have more sin to continue in revival. Yeah, you have to have more meetings. You have to have more this, more that to continue. And those things are tools. But the revival itself is the fire of God on the people of God, bringing about an impossible change in culture and society. All revival was supposed to end in a reformation, always. And it's only happened a few times in all of history. But it was always supposed to end with a reformation of culture itself. Some of the most surprising things that you've learnt about God in the last 20 years? Well, after my dad died is when I learned about his goodness. I would have told you he was good before that. But there's, there's something that happens. You see more than a concept, God is good. You see out of the richness of your walk, of your experience, your encounter, his goodness. I've learned more about his goodness since tragedy than I ever knew before. And that, uh, that's, that's marked me for life. I mean, for, for, forever marked me. Because I, I, saw, I saw it clearest when I least expected to see it. Yeah. What do you desire to see more of in the church? The, what I, if I could choose anything, it would be the glory. Yeah, it's the glory. I've, we've had times where that glory has shown up. There are times where that, that glory, that presence just shows up. And, and the last thing in the world I want to do is talk. So we just, we just worship. We just, I'm not going to interrupt that to do whatever else we have on the list because suddenly it's, all of it's become unimportant, insignificant. The glory is the manifested presence of Jesus. To have him sometimes visible, sometimes felt, but the reality of presence that changes everything. 
We were born for the glory. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the original target was to live in glory. So when we were born again, we were restored to the original target, to live in the manifest presence of Jesus. And to settle for anything less is just foolish because we are designed. You know, our physical senses in uh, Hebrews 5, uh, a mark of maturity in Hebrews 5 is your senses are trained to discern good and evil. So all of our senses were actually designed to recognize God. They were actually designed to be a part of the faculty, the, the, the ability that we have to actually fellowship and commune with God to recognize it. And so everything about us is designed to live in the glory. And, uh, you know, when you experience that, I mean, we've had visible things happen, which is always fun, um, unexplainable. You just, people would ask me, why visible, by visible, a cloud would show up and explode and uh, gold, it looks like gold dust. It's just gold dust that fills an entire room, the air, it's everywhere. Um, it billows, it... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's just all very strange. Um, but I, I don't ever ask why. I, I've, we've had it rain twice indoors. It just it starts raining in, inside. When I was in Las Vegas at a, a conference, a friend, and it started raining at about a six. In fact, Brian and Jen were leading worship, and they started with the song Rain Down. Martin Smith, uh, Delirious. Rain down. They started with that song, and it started raining, and it rained for th probably three hours. He had to move the equipment so he didn't ruin his equipment. The pastor sent people on the roof to find out if there was a problem with the leak. There was no leak. There was no <laughs> nothing. It's just raining inside, indoors. In our school of ministry once, somebody asked me a question about worship, and as soon as they did, it started raining. I don't ever, I don't ever try to explain any of that. These are signs that make you wonder. <laughs> we have to have things we don't understand we've got to if, if I understand everything that's going on in a Christian life I've reduced God to my size I've created God in my image I've got to have mystery around me I've got to have things that I can just simply like a child delight in this glory cloud would show up in our children I didn't know what to do I've, I've got video of our children they'd be on this side of the room and this glory cloud would start over here and they would take off running, their arms wide open, their mouths wide open, running into the cloud of the presence. And I thought, I'm going to follow them. <laughs> <laughs> They're the only ones in the room that seem to know what to do. You know, the rest of us are <clears throat> trying to figure it out. And, uh, you know, it doesn't happen. It doesn't have to happen in a, in a tangible, physical way. Uh, most of the time it doesn't. But when it does, don't use it. Don't use it to promote your church. Right. Don't, don't, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't explain it. Just enjoy it. Yeah. We had that glory show up 26 times. We haven't, had, we haven't had it in that measure for you several years. We'll see. Anyway, yep, 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 yep. We're out of time, which I hate so much. But I would say it's really rare for all of us to be this close to you, to a man of God who actually, I feel like you're like Moses. 
in the nicest way. Like, in the, <laughs> you're not killed on a mountain. Like, you've seen the glory of God and you tell stories about it a little bit, a little bit. I desire that more than anything. And I think that this room probably desires it more than anything. So I wondered if you would pray for us. And like, I'm going to put out a challenge that if you want more of God, if you want to encounter the presence of God, or you want to see His glory, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Now, be wary, because there is a cost, like Pastor Bill said, to encountering the presence of God. So if we mean it, let's mean it. And let's let Him pray for us. There's an interesting thing about the priests in the Old Testament. They couldn't wear wool because wool makes you sweat. And they were to be a people of the presence. And sweat, effort, never gets us into the presence. We never get there because we fight for it, we work for it. It's already his heart. We get there because we surrender to it. We yield to it. We welcome Sometimes it involves singing and shouting and laying on our faces. Sometimes we stand in silence. I remember one Sunday morning, it's only happened once, my son Brian was leading. He played two chords and that glory fell into the room and it was 35 to 40 minutes later before we sang our first song. You just gotta know when not to talk but just to respond. So Father, we already know it's your heart and we're, just, we're so thrilled with the possibility of being a people who are immersed in the glory. We know what it is to, to yield to your manifest presence, to invite you to come and do as you please, to be vessels that just respond to you, that love you, that honor you, that do whatever you say. And so I'm asking the Holy Spirit that you would come, come in that glory, in that glorious presence. Expand every one of us, enlarge our hearts to move with the things that you're about to do in the earth that, that we could actually become a part of. Do it as we sleep. Prepare us for a life in the glory when we are working the least for it, and that's in our sleep. Teach us the ways of affection, the ways of intimate worship, of adoration, of yielding to who you are. Be glorified and let your glory be seen and restored to your church. I pray this for the honor of the name Jesus. For the honor of the name Jesus. Amen.
amazing is Bill Johnson? I don't know anybody like him. I'd ask him a question and he would, I, I, I would think that the answer was coming one way and it would come a completely different way. And so I think there's so many things to take away from today's episode. For me personally, his approach to um, the last thing at night when he goes to bed and he commits himself to the Lord. I just love that because it, it, it's something, I, I guess, you know, for me, if I'm honest, the last thing I usually do is, is something on my phone, um, um, you know, some sort of internet thing, and then I go to sleep. Whereas he, he, he has this approach of just calming himself and committing himself to the Lord. And I just think that's so admirable. And it's the kind of person I would want to be and I would encourage you to be as well. So I hope that there's been some takeaway for you, something specific that you can implement in your life and your journey with the Lord. And um, I hope that it's just stirred your faith and that this week you'll be encouraged by today's episode. It's a good one. And I'm so glad that you joined us. That's it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and it's been useful for your journey. If you haven't already, I'd love to take a minute just to encourage you to subscribe. When you do that, you become part of our growing community of creatives who are trying their best to live out their faith through their creativity. So join us anywhere you find your podcasts, subscribe, and then you won't miss out on anything. And I always love to hear from you. So please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It helps with the visibility of the podcast and it lets us know what you think, what you're enjoying and where we can go with the podcast in the future. Aside from that, you can write to me on Twitter or Instagram at Rich Langton and we'll talk to you next time.